Hey guys, and welcome back to the You Don't Wanna Know podcast. Thanks for stopping by. Um, missed you guys so much. I hope you're all doing well. I know it's kind of early for me to be posting, but I looked at my viewers like two days ago and I saw that I actually had some. <laughs> And I just got really excited and I was like, you know, I might as well throw some content out there. And I wanted to get out, get it out super fast. So this case is um, a very special one to me. So I'll explain that in a minute. But first, I want to talk about the movie called The Black Phone. Oh my gosh. If you haven't seen it, pause this episode, go see the movie, and then come back and finish this episode and watch or listen to all the other episodes, if you don't mind, Um, because that movie was amazing. I have not seen a movie like that in so long. It was so freaking good, and it was just very nice. That movie, I swear, I have to burp, hold on, back, sorry about that, Um, but that movie, it's going to stand the test of times. Like, it's never going to be a bad movie, because there's nothing that like points out that it was made in 2022 or whatever year it was made. It's like based in the 70s or 80s, I want to say, but like that, who cares about that part? And there's no, like, I don't feel like it's trying to sway me in a certain direction about anything political or social or anything like that. It's literally just about the story and it's amazing and it's, it's a little spooky. Oh my gosh, the acting is done so well. I literally turned to my boyfriend at the end of the movie and I was like, that was a great freaking movie. And he looked at me too and he's like, yeah, that was really good. And that alone should tell you something because he doesn't like the movies that I love. And I love like a lot of weird stuff, I guess. Like there's this movie called The Turning and it was not a good movie, but he will never ever let me forget that I made him see that movie. Um, but it was just, it was so good. Like, I just, I don't want to, like, give it away or anything like that because there's some stuff in it. I just want you guys to go watch it. So, if you could please, like, just go watch it and tell me, or at least thank me for telling you to go watch it because it is worth it. So worth it. So, thank me later. Um, and then another thing. So, it's just a quick story I wanted to tell you guys. So, I am a sleepwalker. Well, at least I used to be a sleepwalker. I am still a sleep sleep talker, so that's super great. And the other night, I was having a very vivid dream. And this happens, um, this has happened throughout my life where, like, I'll have a dream, I'll wake up, and then I'll think, I gotta continue whatever's happening. I can remember when I was younger and I played basketball, I had a dream that I had, like, a basketball game or something like that, and I woke up put my uniform on. This was probably like 10:30 at night and I went into the kitchen and I was like we got to go, we got to go, we got to go. And like I specifically I still remember saying that. And my brother looks at me like like I'm freaking possessed and my mom just tells me go back to bed, you're having a dream and I'm like you're probably right. <laughs> and I went back to bed. Well, that hasn't happened for a while. Happening the other night, I had a dream. Don't even remember what the dream was. I grabbed my boyfriend's pillow and (laughs) I put it on the table and I looked at him and I was like, I don't want him to see me like that I'm doing this, but I'm doing him a favor and I hope he appreciates it. (laughs) Then I, uh, he goes to bed and he's like, where's my pillow? And I'm like, what are you talking about? It's on the table. Like I think that in my head and I'm like slowly coming back to reality and I just think, nope, I'm wrong. This is, this is me in the wrong in this situation. I just told them it's, it's on the table and I went to bed. So that's what it's like living with me. Um, if you want to be my roommate, just let me know. I can take your pillow. That's totally fine. So I just wanted to tell that story and I hope you guys chuckled at that because that made me laugh like super hard. And the whole next day I was just laughing randomly because I was thinking about it. Okay. Um, back to the beginning Like I said, I saw that I had a couple new followers and I just got really excited. So I wanted to throw out another um, episode 
and this is a very, very, very special episode to me. This is probably what kicked me off into true crime. I uh, had a college class my first year of college, and I had to write a paper for extra credit side story. This teacher was horrible. I was going on vacation at the end of the semester, and it was during the final, and she's like, you have to take the final at the class time or you can't take it at all. So I was like, shoot, I don't know what I'm going to do because I'm going to be out of the country. So she had extra credit. I did the extra credit. She said on one or two pages, write an essay. And I'm like, how the heck am I supposed to fit an essay in two pages? So I did three paragraphs and she didn't even consider it because an essay cannot consist of three paragraphs, whatever. At the end of the day, I'm very happy that I did it anyways because that's what kind of plopped me right into true crime and I learned about one of the most interesting cases I have ever and probably will ever um, learn about and also it just introduced me to this man who was an incredibly loved and amazing man and parents who just loved him so much. So I'm just so thankful for that stupid assignment and that stupid teacher who shouldn't have been a teacher, but whatever. I'm not going to dwell on that. But um, this this case, <clears throat> it is a documentary, and that's where I got like most of my information from. But I do recommend still watching the documentary because there are things that I didn't put in there. And the documentary, it just has something that you can't speak about. You have to see it. You have to see the stories that these per- these people tell. Um, so I will just get into it at this point. <laughs> I guess not just now, but like now I'm going to jump in. So here we go. Let's get uncomfortable, guys. So it starts off with a man, November 6th, walking in Keystone Park in Derry, Pennsylvania. He found a body laying behind a car. It was an unidentified man. Um, The police said he was in his 30s. He was found in hospital scrubs on his stomach next to a car in a parking lot. And he was dead. And the man who found him saw that he was shot. So he died from a gun. Um, Later, the autopsy showed that he was shot in the face, twice in the chest, in the butt, and in the back of the head. So that's five bullet wounds. And um, I'm not sure if this is how you say it, but it was a CCI 22 caliber gun. I feel like it's not CCI, it's something different, but hopefully you guys know what I mean. Um, and later, the police identified it was Andrew Bagby. And that's the that's the man that we're going to focus on really a lot today, and that's the man who's just absolutely incredible. Now, in the beginning of the documentary, they go through a few words to describe him. And a few of those words were opinionated, smart, charismatic, a good storyteller, selfless, kind, caring, my favorite, a kingsman, and then the worst possible gas, just to name a few. And he was actually pretty proud when it was horrible gas that he made. So just to describe Andrew... So Andrew, uh, he was an only child to his mother, Kate and David Bagby. They were described as the parents, cheerful and young at heart. And this family, guys, oh my gosh, just absolutely beautiful. And uh, I'm going to try not to cry, but oh, I cried like five times watching that documentary. Like, And I've watched that documentary so many times in my life just because it's such a great story or (laughs) not a great story it's such a beautiful story learning about Andrew but horrible outcome he did not deserve it so David and Kate they were cheerful and young at heart Andrew was described to be just like his dad and his dad was an older model which I absolutely love and Kate she is like this short little lady and she's described as feisty and a little fireball and I feel like you kind of have to be that way when you're like kind of short but she definitely was just really cool so how Kate and David met Kate was a traveling nurse and she was only supposed to be in the U.S. for two years and then she was going to go to like Australia for another two years one other place and then return to England and she never thought about marriage. She even said, 
it was never on my list to do at all. And then she met David. So David was in the Navy um, and he was drinking at a bar. One of his buddies came in and he's like, hey, I found two English nurses that want to go on a boat. And David says, so, quote unquote, so I took the little one, which is adorable. He said in two weeks, they went out 13 times and in five months they were married. So I've already fallen in love with them at this point because that's just so beautiful. Kate says, (laughs) he quoted Shakespeare. So what was I supposed to do? So men, write that down, quote Shakespeare, and you got it in the bag. Um, so they got married and they tried to have a baby for two years and they just couldn't do it. They talked about adoption and as soon as they kind of got more serious about it, they had Andrew and they absolutely fell in love with Andrew. He was like the missing piece that they didn't know they uh, were missing, which makes sense, missing piece, whatever, you know what I mean? But just absolutely beautiful. Uh, Andrew grew up in Saratoga, California, where he just had so many great friends. And it was just obviously Andrew's personality because it doesn't matter where you are. If you have a great personality, you're just going to get gravitated towards and people are just going to fall in love with you. And that's just what happened with Andrew. He just had so many great friends. And truth be told, I think that they wanted to be friends with him because of his parents as well. Like, Andrew was awesome. His parents were awesome. Whole package, you know, just awesome. So, a little bit about his childhood. Um, He would go to England and New Orleans every summer. He would spend a little time at both places where he would visit his mom's parents and like his cousins, aunts, uncles in England, and then he would go to New Orleans, which is where David, his dad, was from. And each place, they both said that you would think that he grew up there just because he was so comfortable there. He was so loved and so loving and just absolutely incredible. So you were shocked when you found out that he wasn't from those areas. It was really cool to think about it too because He wouldn't go to, like, London, England. He would go to, like, the outskirts and the places that not a lot of people knew about. And he would be able to, like, play in castles, which blows my mind. But super awesome. Just imagine being, like, an eight-year-old and being able to, like, pretend a sword fight in a castle. Just super cool. Um, But in this documentary... Uh, you get to see and meet all of Andrew's friends, or not all of them, because I'm sure it'd be impossible to meet all Andrew's friends, but you see a lot of his close friends, and you just realize how loved this man was, and at least five of the guys said that they wanted him to be his best man, which is beautiful and sad at the same time to think about, because that just can't be fulfilled, and it's very sad, but heartwarming you know, I guess, just, it's so cool to see someone be so loved, which is what you see in this documentary. So, um, where was I? He had an uncle in New Orleans that he was really close to who died of cancer, and that was really hard for the family. Um, and it was also really hard for him because he lived so far away from everybody in New Orleans and, um, in New in England just because he was so close to them and one of his cousins was like a couple days or maybe even a day older than him so he was like his brother and that's how they thought of each other as brothers not cousins because they were so close so that was kind of hard for him but he just he made so many friends so he was okay in the end now Andrew growing up one of his best friends name was Kurt he liked to make these movies and Andrew loved to star in them as the villain. And um, Kurt points this out in the documentary, and Kurt actually makes the documentary. Um, It's funny because Andrew, he was a Boy Scout, and he eventually became an Eagle Scout at 15, and I think that's something that you actually do at 18. So he was just like this really good guy, and it's ironic, or it's his double ego, or alter ego, I should say, um, starring in these 
uh, movies as the bad guy. So it was just kind of funny that he would always want to be the bad guy in those things. Eventually, actually, Andrew roped his parents into being a part of the movies, too. So you can see some of Kate and David's acting skills in the documentary. And it's just really cool to see how much fun they had together. So uh, his friend's name was is Kurt, I should say. And Kurt is the one, like I said, who made the documentary. And the documentary is called Dear Zachary. Kurt had said that he wanted to make one more movie with Andrew, which, ugh, not going to cry. It's going to be okay. Kurt and Andrew were so close. He actually, Andrew, his, he, he became a doctor. And in med school, Andrew invested in Kurt's first feature film. So obviously money was pretty tight, but that's just the kind of guy Andrew was. A couple other things about Andrew. Um, he liked to take pictures, which um, not everyone knew about him. And it was very hard to find him wearing pants. So he was just great such a fun personality and he would like I said in the beginning was a great storyteller in the documentary you can see him telling a story about starting a freaking forest fire and it's just hilarious so and oh and he was a pool shark so just so many great things about him such a fun personality and I feel like I kind of knew him at this point and it just makes it a little harder to hear about this again and again but it's such an important thing, and his story deserves to be told. So that's why that's why I started this podcast, because everyone's story deserves to be told, and everyone deserves to be know the people whose lives were taken. So this one's for Andrew Bagby. Um, so Andrew, he uh, wanted to be in med- medical school, and he actually got rejected for the first school that he went to, and he was really worried but he went to his dad and his dad was like, hey, you know what you're going to do? You're going to apply to another one. And he's like, you know what? You're right. I'm going to apply to another one. He didn't let it get him down for too long. He wiped himself back up. He applied to another school. So Andrew eventually got accepted into the Newfoundland uh, Medical School. And that's where he met Shirley Turner. Now, Shirley, uh, she was a Canadian woman who was 12 years older than him. So he met him she met him when he was 28 and she was 40. Andrew had previously been engaged. I couldn't tell for sure. What I think it was is he was engaged in college. And then when he went to med school, she broke it off with him. But they were still friends and they still cared about each other. They just weren't the ones for each other. So he was kind of heartbroken at this point And he met Shirley. And she just was the one... For him at that point, I guess. I don't know. But Shirley had two kids from a previous marriage. Um, so all of his friends were kind of weird about her, you know. Um, it wasn't like how it is now where, like, everyone's accepted and, like, you can date whoever you want. No judgment. So people thought it was kind of weird how old she was. And she would make these, like, weird, crude jokes that were just poor of taste. Everyone just thought it was weird, but they didn't say anything just because Andrew was so great and they didn't want to hurt his feelings and they trusted him. Honestly, I think that's what it boils down to is that they trust him. Another weird thing that his friends found was that she had a really hard time finishing her schooling and getting her credentials. She had finished residency, um, but I think they had to do like boards or something like that. So my limited amount of knowledge for the process of becoming a doctor comes from Grey's Anatomy. So I could be totally false at this, but either way, she just couldn't make that final step. Side note, I was going to watch Grey's Anatomy last night, but I'm at the episode where an important person dies and I didn't want to cry. So I was like, you know what? Might as well study for a podcast or do some research. And then I cried for like 20 minutes because of this story. So I was just meant to cry last night, I guess. Back to Andrew. Just wanted to let you guys know that. So his friends found that kind of weird, but they just kind of thought that Andrew was healing from uh, his previous engagement and Shirley was just the thing that he needed, I guess. So they just accepted her and they were nice to her. They were never mean just because like that wouldn't be fair to Andrew. Andrew. 
So they just, they accepted her. Um, but one, one of his friends said that he told Andrew, you know, you could be better, right? You, or you could do better. And he goes, no, I really can't. So that just kind of shows that Andrew was really hard on himself after the breakup. And he thought that Shirley was all he can get and all he deserved. When in reality, Andrew was an amazing person and he deserved like a supermodel because he was so great. So at the end of Andrew's residency, he moved to, oh my gosh, I don't remember how to say this, Syracuse, oh my gosh, Syracuse, duh, it just looks weird when it's spelled out, okay, that's my excuse, I have dyslexia, forgive me, I figured it out. So he moved to Syracuse, New York to start his uh, surgical practice, because that's what he started in, and he was absolutely miserable. Shirley had come to the U.S. as well, but she went to Iowa, not uh, New York, but they stayed in touch. They would visit each other, and Andrew just realized surgery was not for him. He hated it so much, so he moved to a family practice in Latrobe, Pennsylvania, which, fun fact, was home to Arnold Palmer, Mr. Rogers, and they said uh, competitive football, but who knows? That's like not for sure, whatever. But he fell in love with it. He was so happy there. He just was so natural with it. And the people there were nervous about it because if you've watched Grey's Anatomy, you know that surgeons are pretty cold and they're all about cutting. So they're like, the people who were there previously are were there already were like Andrew just so you know like this isn't like surgery or being a surgical doctor you have to spend a lot of time with patients and he was like got it can do it check it off can do this can do like circles around you he was so good at it which like makes sense because of how great he was so Andrew was just so happy at this point which makes me so happy but he was so happy in his family practice He finally started feeling better about himself and about his situation, and he realized that Shirley was just not the right person for him. I think he started to see what his friends were seeing, or at least he, like, opened his eyes, and he realized, like, Shirley, no, you're not the one for me. But he was so kind, he didn't want to hurt her, and he invited her to a wedding before the breakup and still went with her to the wedding. And it was a friend of his wedding. And they said that she was just all over him during the wedding. And one of his friends, it was a girl, she offered to get him a drink. And Shirley goes, oh my gosh, trying to sleep with the best man. And the girl was just like, absolutely not. Like, you're crazy. So she's just being Shirley, you know, being wild, being annoying. And it's like, you're a 40-year-old woman. Pull it together like my gosh whatever so on November 3rd 2001 he completely broke it off with her I think it was after the wedding um she was at the airport getting ready to fly back to Iowa when he was like done can't do it anymore and I know what you're thinking that's kind of considered cruel like you do you break up with a person at an airport They are probably crying, they have to get on a flight, and they're going to be crying on the way there, they're going to hide in the bathroom and cry, but you know what it probably was? Andrew was trying to be so nice and trying to hold on for as long as he could, but he just finally snapped and couldn't do it anymore, and that that was the moment he decided, I have to be done now, I cannot handle this woman for another second longer, because I have been in that situation where I have just tried to deal with someone for so long and finally I just couldn't do it anymore, couldn't hold on. My grip was completely gone and I just let go. So I get it. I totally, totally get it. So that was November 3rd. He put her on a plane and said sayonara, hoped to never see that lady again. But on November 5th, early in the morning, knocking on Andrew's door, can you guess who it is, guys? It was freaking Spider-Man. Just kidding. That's a lie. It was Shirley. Would have been cool if it was Spider-Man, though. So, Andrew, being the nice person he was, 
agreed to talk to her. Now, Andrew is a freaking doctor, so he had things to do. He had to get ready for a shift. So he's like, you know what, Shirley, I'll meet up with you at six o'clock. We'll talk. I got to get ready because I think this was like four in the morning. So Shirley leaves and Andrew starts getting ready and he decides to call his friend Clark. So Andrew tells Clark, you'll never guess who just showed up at my doorstep. And Clark's like, who was it? And Andrew goes, it was Shirley. And Clark's like, mm, that's scary. He says, you know, Andrew, when I send a lady or when I send a girl, put her on a plane and send her miles, thousands and thousands of miles away and she comes back, I would get scared. And Clark told him, he said, meet somewhere public because only a crazy, crazy person does what she did. And he's like, you know, that's good advice. I got to sit down and talk to you about this. And Andrew made plans with Clark at 7.30 to speak about what happened. Andrew was never late. So I'm guessing you guys can already tell what I'm going to say. Or Clark was very, very nervous when Andrew didn't show up at 7.30. So 8 o'clock rolls around, then 8.30, 9 o'clock. He gets really scared. So he goes down to the hospital to look for his car because that's how Clark and Andrew met. We're at the hospital. And when Clark doesn't see Andrew's car, he gets scared. Very, very scared. So Clark goes to the hospital. He actually goes inside and speaks with all the people there. And they say Andrew didn't show up for rounds and they're getting worried. So they're asking around, they're calling, seeing if anyone has seen Andrew yet. And it's just like this very, very heavy feeling right now. Everyone's worried, but they still have things they have to do. So they're still working, they're still getting things done. And all of a sudden, a police officer comes up. And one of the head doctors goes up to the police officer and they go, it's about Andrew, isn't it? And the police officer is like, let's just gather everyone. I need to talk to you guys. So the police officer says, we found an a-, a body and it's Andrew's. Clark instantly knew who did it. So all the way on the other side of the States, Andrew's mom is working and the front desk lady calls to Kate and she goes, Kate, there's a police officer from Sunnyvale on the phone for you. Do you want to talk to him? And she's like, yeah, sure. Uh, is this about Andrew? And he told her to call this number um, that it's the coroner's number and it's not good. And she instantly thinks her son was dead. But the officer couldn't say it. Obviously, that's very sensitive information and that's just not something he could say. So she calls the number, but of course the office was freaking closed. Like, are you kidding me? Um, so the answering machine, machine said to call back tomorrow. Well, she did not do that. She just called the radio or the police station right back and... Um, she got a hold of Sergeant Cruel or Cruelette, something like that. Um, and he confirmed her worst fear. He said that her son was dead and that if she had any, any information, that would be very helpful on leads. And she hung up, called her husband just out of adrenaline and panic. She called him and told, told him what happens happened or what she knew. And then she called the police officer right back and she's like, we're getting on a plane, we're coming. We're going to be there very soon. So they get there, they go to the hospital and meanwhile, they're telling all of Andrew's friends the situation and if there's any way that they could help, meaning like if they knew anything, if he said something specific, wow, suspicious, jeez. Um, Just any information would be very helpful. Once the parents got to where in Pennsylvania, where the, um, where everything took place, where Andrew was located, the hospital actually came and took care of his parents. They would have meals with them and they would just sit and cry and listen to the parents talk about Andrew. People would talk about Andrew and they were just there for them. So it just shows how great Andrew's friends were and how genuine they were that they wanted to sit and speak with uh, Kate and David and just be there for them. In the documentary at this point, um, Kurt, who is the filmmaker, he goes around and he asks everyone, 
just the experience of hearing the news of Andrew's death and everyone just has this very intense expression on their face and they can say exactly where they were, the exact feeling that they got, the exact actions that they took just because of how immensely heartbreaking this news was for them. And that's how amazing Andrew was to these people. They were just so hurt. And not that this is a good way to gauge it, but they just, Andrew made such a huge impact on their life that when they found out he was dead, it was like a chunk of them was taken out. Andrew touched every single place that he went. And there were countless memorials to him throughout so many different areas like England, New Orleans, and uh, New Finland, and Pennsylvania, and New York, and California, just all over because everyone loved Andrew. Now, at this point, Shirley started running away, right away. And the police, obviously, they knew that she was a person of interest, so they started questioning her. And um, they asked, hey, Shirley, where were you? So Shirley goes, oh, I was sick in bed. And they were like, okay, Shirley, when was the last time you talked to him? And she was like, oh, I don't know, um, maybe Sunday? And I believe Sunday was like two days after. So the plane ride was on a Saturday. And then, so that means that she would talk to him the next day and then the fifth. So I think the way it tracks out is the third was when she got on the plane, which was a Saturday. Then Sunday is the day that the last day that she claimed to have talked to him. And then Monday was the day that he was killed. You would think I would have had that figured out before I started recording but you would be wrong. Also, it took me like five tries to say that because I can't speak. So podcasting life was clearly meant for me. So they asked her where she was. She said she was sick. They asked her when she last talked to Andrew. She said a day before. Then they say, hey, Shirley, you just bought a gun, didn't you? And you've also taken lessons on that, haven't you? And she's like, yeah, yeah, I got it for my safety. And he's like, that was a CCI 22 caliber gun, right? And if you guys remember from the beginning, that was the kind of gun that was used to kill Andrew. And she's like, well, yeah, but yeah, no, I just got it for for protection. I would never do anything like that. Like, no, I'm sick in bed. So the police were like, okay, Shirley, yeah. Um, how about all these phone calls you made from Iowa to Pennsylvania and then from Pennsylvania back to Iowa between those days? That's kind of weird. And Shirley's like, oh, you know what? Duh. Obviously, I was there. I just didn't think that I would be questioned. And her exact words were, I didn't think I had to come up with all this. Her exact words come up. So that's like, hmm, Freudian slip maybe? But an exact tracking of her cell phone records were 11-10, November 4th, she was in Chicago, Illinois. Then 10-19, that same day, 10-19 p.m., so at night, she was in Indiana making call. Then the next day at 8-07, she was in Pittsburgh, and she even logged onto eBay on Andrew's computer on that day, the day of the 5th. Then... At 11.26 p.m., she made a call in Ohio, so she's on her way back. The day after that, so that would be the 6th, she made a call in Indiana, or excuse me, Iowa, at 9.48 a.m. Then, this freaking witch had the audacity to call Andrew and say, Oh, I thought I was going to catch you on lunch. I just wanted to catch up with you. Love you. Bye. Oh my gosh, when I heard that, because there are clips from her. A lot of the phone calls are recorded, and obviously this is a voicemail that she left, so they had the recording. My skin turned, my stomach turned, my blood boiled, because who but a psychopath would do that? Like, mm. oh, just, I gotta calm down for a second. Whew, okay. So... The police were like, 
why were you driving around so much? What's going on? And they asked about the gun again. They said, like, where's the gun, Shirley? And she's like, oh, you know, I don't know. Uh, it's either in the closet or in my bedroom or in my car. And then they say, like, hey, these are the exact same bullets. Like, what's going on? And she's like, you know what? This is her new story. You know what? This is what happened. I drove to see Andrew and he took the gun and I watched him put it in his trunk. So she's got this whole story. And at this point, she's back in Canada where she is from. And it just took the police a long time. Otherwise, they would have been able to arrest her for sure. But they had to go to every single um, cell phone tower and go through all the logs to find all this information. So it took about two weeks to get it. And unfortunately, that was enough time for her to run away. So while the director, Kurt, is explaining all this, every time he like says something about Shirley or quotes her or actually uses a recording of her, he goes to this picture of her and she's got a plate of food and it's clear that she's eating and she's like, half sticking her tongue out, half not. So she just looks like a complete idiot. And I don't know if this was done on purpose, but it just made me feel a little bit better about the whole thing. Not great, obviously, but just showing that terrible picture of her, it's like, yeah, you deserve that. I hope that picture stays with you forever. So Shirley's back home and they're having all these memorials for for Andrew and they're like maybe this is what we can do to get her to come back so the parents and the friends are inviting Shirley to come to these memorials and she never falls for it because unfortunately Shirley is not dumb it's very very unfortunate meanwhile she's also harassing his ex-fiance saying you were nothing to him and I was everything he didn't love you half as much as he loved me and just saying these terrible, terrible things to her. And the police had to come up with a new plan because obviously they weren't going to get her to come back to the U.S. Luckily, on December 12th, they were able to charge her and put her in jail. Unfortunately, her her bail was $75,000 and she posted that the next day. Her terms were that she had to turn in her airport or her passport and she had to check into jail once a week. So that was all she had to do. So that's super fantastic. Then, on February 7th, she announced that she was pregnant with Andrew's baby. And once the parents of Andrew, Kate and David, found out that she was pregnant, they moved to New Finland to fight for custody. Because, once again, David and Kate are amazing people. So the start... The fight started right then and there, starting February 15th all the way to July 30th. I'm going to say that again. February 15th to July 30th, there were six hearings. And I swear, guys, each one of those hearings could have been just like a simple phone call or text because it was like, meet up. Okay, we're going to plan a date to actually meet up. Okay, adjourned. All right, now I'm going to say that... I'm not qualified to go over this. All right, meeting adjourned. And it was just insane. From February 15th to July 30th, nothing freaking happened. A murderer walked the streets because she posted bail. Absolutely insane. Makes me sick to my stomach. They were literally like, okay, I acknowledge what you say. Let's close this meeting. All right, next thing. Let's wait another day. And just stupid little things like that that didn't need to go on. So during all this craziness, the Bagby, the Bagbys started to make um, connections and friends right away in Newfoundland. Because like I said, I'm going to say it a thousand more times, they were just amazing people. And on July 18th, 2002, Zachary Andrew Turner was born. And if you recall, I don't even know if I said this, but the film is called Dear Zachary. 
So this film was originally supposed to be a letter to a son about the father. And what Kurt is doing is he's going all across the nation because that's how many lives Andrew's touched all across the nation and even going to England just to get stories about his dad so Zachary can know who his father was. But the one thing that really bothered me, and of course, like, no one talked about it, but whatever, is the fact that she gave him her last name. Now, you'll notice throughout this story that Shirley is a narcissist, master manipulator, psychopath. So I think that was just another little move that she made in order to just really take a dig into um, Kate and David. Another thing that she did was make it almost impossible for Kate and David to see him. When Zachary was born, she did not let them into the, the delivery room. They had to stand outside of the door and look at their newborn grandbaby because she wouldn't let them in. So the, the Bagbys knew that this was going to be hard and they went to family court right away to fight for their grandbaby for Zachary. And it went back and forth for so long, just negotiating and honestly begging for Shirley to give them some kind of time with their grandbaby. And she finally came in, gave in. And it was all these terms and conditions. It was only for one hour, once a week, they were able to hold and be with the grandbaby, which is so heartbreaking that a murderer... A freaking murderer could decide the, the, I don't even know that I just so at a loss for words, a murderer could decide what would happen and how many times a grandbaby could see his grandparents. (sighs) Okay. I'm calm now. I'm calm. Sorry about that. So before each of the hour-long weekly sessions they actually had to be searched and it's so sweet because Kate said that she would like sit get ready and be so excited to be searched because that meant after that search she got to hold her beautiful little grandbaby and this was not enough for Kate the absolutely humiliating search and the only once a week um, seeing of Zachary was not enough she had to start complaining about the meetups saying that, oh, you're making him cry before I, you give him to me. Like, this is a bad experience. You're getting him all riled up, blah, blah, blah. While this is all going on, the fight is still continuing. The Bagbees are being very mature about everything. They're not talking about the situation whenever they see Shirley because Shirley has to be with them when they see Andrew, or excuse me, when they see Zachary. But September, the court hearings start up again, and Shirley's lawyer tries to get the case thrown out on technicalities. And Shirley, um, I don't know how she had so much money, but she had so much money. Um, she just tried to draw it out for as long as she could, so the Bagbees just wouldn't have any money and had to stop and give up. But luckily, that didn't happen. So they went back and forth a few more times after he tried to get the case thrown out. But eventually, the judge found on November 14th, so it wasn't as long, still pretty long though, that she would probably be found guilty by a jury, so she got put in jail, and Kate and David got the baby. They got custody, so it's awesome, but you guys are going to be pissed again. Give me one second. The reason why Kate and David got custody was because they came to an agreement, and In case you guys didn't know, an agreement means each side has to give a little. And unfortunately for Kate and David, they gave them more than a little. The agreement was every single day they had to accept a call from Shirley from prison. And then once a week, that's right, once a week they had to visit her with Zachary in prison. So absolutely horrible. Honestly, that was probably the worst, worst thing. Like, it couldn't have gotten any worse. (sighs) Those poor people. But you know what? They did it. 
And in the documentary, they say that um, that area they were in, there was like eight months of winter and four months of still bad weather, not great weather. So they had to travel through that weather to visit the lady that murdered their son once a week. And they have to t- they had to take a phone call from her every single day and listen to the lady that murdered their son. Now, if you can't tell by now, Shirley is a puppet master and she's just trying to control every single step of the way. She would say things like, oh, because this is near Christmas time at this point. I don't know what to get Andrew. Can you do something for me? Or excuse me, I keep saying Andrew. I don't know what to get Zachary. Can you do this for me? Get him a present. I kind of want to get him a picture that says mommy and daddy. Can you print off a picture of me and Andrew and put it in a frame? Like, oh, luckily they could say no to that. But oh my gosh, just what a sick, vile person to be able to do that. Like, oh. So once again, Shirley would try and go over details of the case. But luckily the Bagbys were really good about it and they just pushed it off and just wouldn't even acknowledge it. They were very kind to her and just did what they had to do. She would even say, people come up to me and ask, like, are you sure these people are going to be okay with Zachary? And Shirley would say all nobly, oh, I trust these people to make it seem like people didn't trust them and that Shirley was this holy angel, whatever. So it's just another way to like dig and dig and dig. Now, Shirley is trying to get out of jail. And she actually goes as far as writing a letter to a judge saying like, I can't afford an attorney anymore. Can you help me? Now, this is very, very assumptuous. But I've seen or I've heard, I should say, this happening in cases. One of two things happened, in my opinion. And this is very assumptuous. There's no backing behind this. I don't want this to be taken as Bible. So just a very, very, very loose opinion. So don't take this as serious as it could be. This is not a fact. Shirley either used her mother card saying, I just want to go see my baby. Or she used her manipulation skills with this judge or maybe even tried to seduce the judge in some way. I don't know. But I'm just assuming somehow she manipulated her this judge either with a fact with her sexuality because she's done that in the past with other people with the fact that she was a baby or just any kind of sympathy that she could get. But the judge went so far to explain in detail how to write an appeal. And on January 10th, they let her out. So she was in jail for less than two months. November 14th to January 10th. Terrible. Judge Welsh Welsh accepted her appeal and wouldn't hear anything else. Even though attorneys literally read part of her case and said, nope, not reading the rest of this. I'm not going to waste this time. Now, in the release, this these are the words of the judge. Dr. Turner's detention is not necessary in the public's interest. While the offense in which she is charged is a violent and serious one, it is not directed at the public at large. There is no indication of a psychological disorder that would give concern to the public, public generally, as her crime, while violent, was specific in nature. So you know what? If you decide to shoot your significant other, you can go free. That is what the judge was saying. Because it's specific to the spouse. And now the spouse is gone, so you're good to go, buddy. Congratulations. Have a Big Mac on me. Like, messed up man. Oh my gosh. And unfortunately, that means Shirley was back on the streets and she got Zachary back. But once again, David and Kate fought for Zachary. They would get yanked around because she had custody. So she would like have them babysit. She would invite them to go to the mall with Zachary, go to swim lessons, just all this stuff. 
And that was the only way they could see Zachary. And their love for Zachary was so intense and so huge that they did it. They spent time with their son's murderer because it got it meant they got to spend time with Zachary because they're just such good and wholesome people. Now, Shirley would say that she would need to check in with Kate and David and make sure like they were in the right place and at the right time, like all this stuff. And she literally said, oh, you know, like it's just what any good babysitter would do. Like the babysitter would let me know what's going on. So that's why I'm asking you. So they, she wasn't even giving him the decency of being their grandparents, his grandparent. They were calling, or she was calling him a babysitter. So that's just horrible. She would make it very hard for them. She would ask to reschedule and just all these horrible things. But Kate and David did it. They worked hard. They stayed patient and they did it for Zachary. Now Zachary had a one year birthday and Shirley took him to McDonald's and David and Kate luckily were invited and at one moment Zachary was put on the ground because he's a one-year-old just walking around doing his thing living his life and he would continuously run to Kate because he loved her so much and Kate was an amazing mom and you better believe it it pissed Shirley off so freaking much and it just made um, Shirley pull back and she would even bring up when um, Kate was talking about Zachary she would say my baby and Shirley actually confronted Kate about this and there's a recording over the phone and you can hear in Kate's voice just this willingness to do whatever it took and I don't know if you remember from the beginning of the podcast I had described Kate as fierce and a fireball but on the phone you could just hear her and it's just it's not who she is but it's who she has to be in order to see this baby and uh, Shirley says I heard you calling him my baby and Kate goes oh don't worry I'll never do that again and it's like so sad because that shouldn't be the case like I have nieces and nephews I call my baby all the time they're obviously not actually my baby but I love them to death and I can't even imagine one of my siblings saying no 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 you don't call him my baby because that's my baby you call it your niece or your nephew not your baby Shirley was described as a fake mother she would pretend to be loving and caring but it was just all like for the show she had two kids and you know what those kids loved Zachary too so it's just it's so sad that she just got to control everyone with Zachary she basically used him as a pawn to get what she wanted so September 25th almost a year after she was put back in jail um, they had another court date scheduled and this was likely the day that uh, Shirley was going to be sent back to the U.S. because of all the evidence. They were finally getting the ball moving. Everything was great. Kate, that day or around that time, Kate and David found a note on their door from the constable because they're not in the U.S. It's not a police or a sheriff or anything like that. It's a constable. It said that Shirley and the baby were missing and you needed to contact him ASAP. So just instantly, a pit just fell into their stomach. And just like the news of Andrew, the news spread like wildfire to all of Andrew's friends because people, all of his friends knew about Zachary. Even Kurt went and visited um, Zachary and they were just all so scared and the same thing. They knew exactly what they were doing, exactly what happened, exactly how they felt when they found out he was missing. And instantly, instantly they thought Shirley fled. And... Unfortunately, Zachary was 13 months old and was found dead on the beach with Shirley in a murder-suicide. Shirley had met a man at a bar and she met, went out with him twice. And the man's friend eventually told him that he thought that this was the woman that murdered someone. And the man said that he did not want to see Shirley again. And this just made Shirley go absolutely crazy she had called him 200 times, leaving messages saying things like, 
I'm pregnant, you need to step up and be a man, and all this stuff. And later that was found to be untrue because they did an autopsy. Um, she had just absolutely gone crazy. She stole one of her friend's cars and drove around. She got lost and got out and asked for directions and eventually found her way. She parked the car on the side of the road near his house. She put pictures of him and her and a used tampon of hers in his lawn to, for some reason, she thought that would help her case and make it seem like he did it, I'm assuming. But she took some pills and luckily she crushed them up and put them in uh, Zachary's bottle. So Zachary was asleep when this all happened, but she took some as well. She tied Zachary around her waist with a sweater and she jumped in the Atlantic Ocean. Dr. Turner's detention is not necessary in the public interest. While the offenses in which she is charged is violent and a serious one, it is not directed at the public at large. There is no indication of a psychological disorder that would give concern to the general public, as her crime, while violent, was not specific in nature. Because the judge said those words, Zachary died. Luckily, the police were just so caring and this was a very small town, so they knew Kate and David. The police grabbed Zachary's body and took it as far away from Shirley's body, nowhere near, because they could tell she was evil and had to keep that baby away from her. Yet somehow the judge couldn't see that. So going back to Judge Welsh's statement, Shirley's last boyfriend, before Andrew, told the Pennsylvania police that she had attempted suicide on his front doorstep and threatened to kill him. Eight people had restraining orders against her. She was put on suicide watch while she was in jail every 15 minutes by a psychiatrist. She was found to be disruptive in jail and she even threatened to stab an inmate with a fork. And the man who tried to report her harassment did not want to give his name because that makes sense to me. I wouldn't want to give my name. I've actually been in a similar situation. And they wouldn't take it in because they didn't have a name and they didn't believe him, which is complete crap. I get it. Like wanting to not put your name on a harassment charge because that's public record and they could find that. I worked at this job. Um, it was a hotel and there was this man who, it was an old man he could be nice at times, but he harassed me at some point. One time I came into work and I had a headache and he asked me if I was on my period. He would make inappropriate jokes. He would say like, uh, this girl accidentally broke the water cooler because it tipped over and she was trying to change the water. And he's like, why wasn't a guy doing it? And I was like, are you kidding me? Like, you're going to play that right now? And another time he had, like just snapped at me because I didn't give him my full attention and that was the point where I went and um, reported him, or at least I tried to. And the HR lady said no because I wouldn't put my name on him. She said that I had to confront him in order to actually report him. When in reality, I think it's because he was there for so long and no one wanted to deal with him. And he's just an old man. And I'm almost positive she said something like that where like she said he's just an old man and that's just how they are. And it's like... Yeah, and you know what happens? Things change and people shouldn't be the way they are. They were because that's messed up. Like just because I'm a woman doesn't mean my period is going to stop me from being able to do things. And just because I'm a woman doesn't mean I can't change a freaking water cooler. Like, oh, not about me. I'm so sorry. It just gets me heated when I think about that because he didn't get any penalty. He got paid such a good salary to treat women like crap at that job. So I get it, not wanting to put your name on things because I wouldn't want to confront him, but I just wanted him to get in trouble because he was doing something wrong because that's what's supposed to happen. But with all those things against Shirley that were public record that they should have known about, Shirley was not a threat to, public, to the public somehow. The fact that she did stuff in jail and was like terrible in jail and she still wasn't recognized as a threat to the public just blows my mind absolutely terrible so 
just like um, Andrew, Zachary's dad, Zachary had so many people who loved him and came out to the funeral. Kate and David spread his ashes in the same places that they did with Andrew's in New Orleans and England. At this point, Kate and David had had enough. Zachary was gone and Shirley was dead, so they had no reason to hold back at this point, and they just fully jumped in and fought back. And they they were even advised against it, and they said, absolutely not. So Kirk actually, in the documentary, tried to get the other side of the story, the judge's point, because obviously this looks very bad for the judges. Almost none of the judges would reach out or respond, but yet Judge Welsh went as far as basically writing her back, taking the time to sit down, write a letter, go through the a process of appeal with Shirley. But they wouldn't talk to Kurt about clearing their name, basically. One of the judges did respond. He was like, I'm not ashamed of what I did. I have it on all public records, so you can just look at that. But that's not important. So at this point, Kate started training to become an advocate in the child dependency court. And she also started or started working more in a group for parents who had lost a child due to murder. I'm sorry if you heard a basset hound barking in the background. She likes to bark. So David and Kate, there she is again. David and Kate launched an investigation on the psychiatrist who was with her in the beginning of everything. Because you remember how Shirley posted somehow $75,000? Well, the psychiatrist posted $65,000 for her bail. And he was actually found guilty for professional misconduct and forced to undergo psychiatric counseling. So a psychiatrist had to undergo psychiatric counseling. I don't know if that's normal, but that does not seem okay to me. They even found a man to go through the case the entire case and find out what went wrong and basically how to figure out and set laws to make sure it never happens again. And he found that Zachary shouldn't have been in her care and his death was 100% preventable. Which like, yeah, obviously. So thank God someone's doing something. David wrote a book called Dances with the Devil, a memoir of a murder and a loss, published March 15th of 2007, and it sold out in four weeks, so it became a national bestseller. And on December 2010, or in December, I should say 2010, a bill was passed. It's called C-464. It was passed in Canada, and the bill states... Um, the bill amends the criminal code to provide that the detention of an accused in custody may be justified where it is necessary for the protection or safety of the public, including any person under the age of 18. So I think what it's saying is basically if they're in custody and it's something very serious, if they have a minor that they have custody over, that's going to get looked at because that might be bad. That might not be worth doing. So just, um, that was one of the last things I could find on David and Kate. I couldn't figure out if they had anything else going on, if they had passed away because they were older at that point. Um, I really couldn't find anything else. Um, the last thing I want to say about them is a quote that, um, two separate people said about David and Kate. I think God put some people down on earth just to be examples for the rest of us, and another person called them God's blessing to earth. Now, this documentary gets to me, and and honestly, I can't tell you enough times you need to watch watch it, because it's so emotional. The director, um, Kurt, he reads a lot of things that happen. He actually narrates the whole thing, and he starts talking about Andrew's death and Zachary's death, and you can hear him choking up because of how hard it is to do this but he knew that this was important and you can hear me choking up too because I fell in love with Andrew the first time I watched this and I will watch this I've watched it like 10 times and I will continue to watch this because it's just so important to know what happened and to make sure this never happens again 
because we lost so much because of Shirley. I don't even want to say her name anymore, but we lost so much. We lost Andrew, who's going to be an amazing doctor, and he was already an amazing person. And we lost Zachary, who literally lost his entire life because he was with the wrong person who should have never had her, had him. And it just breaks my heart. But that story needs to be told. Now, Kurt actually mentions um, he almost gave up on the film once Zachary died because he realized, but he realized he wasn't making the documentary for Zachary anymore. He was making it for Kate and David, but I actually disagree with that. I don't think you can say exactly who you're making it for. And yes, I get like, it's very sweet and it makes sense that it would be for David and Kate, but I think it goes so much further than that. I think this documentary is for everyone because this is such a huge part of my life and anyone who is lucky to somehow stumble upon this will get so much out of this film that it's just for everyone it's not just for them even though a huge part of it is for them it's a documentary to learn about this amazing person and this horrible story so they can be aware and maybe somehow change something so it never happens so once again, guys, please go watch that documentary. You won't be st- sorry. And on a lighter note, go watch Black Phone because that was amazing too. Thanks for listening. I really hope all the people that were listening the past two days will listen to this one too and just fall in love with this story with Andrew and with Zachary. Um, I made a Facebook page, so that's really exciting. I'll be posting stuff about episodes on there. Uh, you can follow me on the You Don't you don't want to know podcast uh, Instagram page. You can also send me an email on the YDWK podcast at gmail.com. Oh, and the Facebook page is you don't want to know. Um, and that's yeah. You, you don't want to know. <laughs> I just freaking love the name of my podcast because Apple did an advertisement for me and it was like, this is what you missed out on. And then it's, you don't want to know. <laughs> And it's just the best. I love it. But thanks for listening, guys. I hope that you took something from this story. And send me an email if you have any suggestions. Like and follow if you don't mind. But I just hope you guys have a great weekend. Or whatever, wherever we are in the week. Because it's all a blur at this point. Bye, guys. 